Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. We had some snow here during the last few weeks. One dump came on a Monday night with 12 inches. Then before we had time to dig out, another hit us on Thursday morning with another foot. The Amish hitched up their sleighs and got their kids to school, but we English were stuck. When the plow did make it down our gravel road, it scraped off layers of snow, revealing a sheet of ice underneath. By the following Monday, I thought I'd make a run for it. Then the phone rang. Don't go out, my neighbor Donna told me at 8 a.m. that morning. Several other neighbors had already been pulled out of the ditch. More days passed, and a couple of lone buggies made it up my hill, but not a single car or truck. One morning at 6 a.m., I found my front door frozen shut. To de-ice it, I reached for the best tool in the toolbox, a hair dryer. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, Banjo, my dog, seemed to say. He wanted out right away. The Gingriches were invited for Sunday dinner to the Yoders, who live a half mile south of me. The Gingriches live north on the blacktop that had one lane open. In their buggy, the Gingriches started out to the Yoders, but once they ventured onto our snow-packed road, they only made it a half mile before they turned around and went back. They stopped at the Millers on the corner to ask if the road was that bad all the way south. I believe it is, Ephraim Miller said, then invited the Gingariches to join them for Sunday dinner instead. And they all sat down and bowed their heads in thanks. I turned my focus to preparing my taxes. I spent hours preparing my 1099s digitally on a commercial website that lost my forms, then took days to submit them. Around and around, the little ball spun. I downloaded my own 1099s from emails sent to me. I gathered up all my receipts that still needed to be entered into my Excel sheets and tallied everything up. Then, when the 25-mile-an-hour winds finally stilled, I pulled on my studded boots, ventured out the door, and tried to shake some of the snow from the branches of the trees in my windbreak. They were so loaded down, I thought they would break. Job accomplished, I decided to check on Donna next door. The drifts were so high that she couldn't see out any of her windows. And of course, her car hadn't been out of the garage for days. 
I thought I'd find her curled in her recliner by the wood stove, reading a book, a cup of hot chocolate in hand. Instead, she bent over the wood stove with a long fork with a hot dog on the end. I know how to live, she said, and pulled out a whole bag of marshmallows. These are really good with the hot dogs. Donna licked her fingers. I have a freezer full of meat, so I could last months here living on meat. Once her campout picnic was over, she fixed herself a steak and popped a Coors. So today's show is about spirits. Spirits here and abroad. Spirits in a can or jug or spirits in the air that come back to haunt us. So lean back, relax, enjoy the beauty of the winter, and let's raise a glass together. Often I make my annual visit to Ireland soon after the first of the year. At that time in Iowa, the snow is usually drifting shut the pasture gate, the wind shooting down through my parka to anesthetize any little inch of bare skin. Why in the world are you coming to Ireland at this time of year? My Irish friends ask. To them, the weather in their country is miserable with steady rain and wind spraying ocean water up against the sea wall. In the mid-19th century, the famine Irish were urged to emigrate to the Midwest in hopes of claiming free land. When they got here, they were astonished by the cold, and they would have turned around and gone back home if there had been a there there. The Scandinavian immigrants thought the Irish lazy, huddled around the hearth in the winter. To me, winter in Ireland feels like spring. The temperature usually holds around 40 to 50 degrees. A few bricks of turf in the fire take the chill out of the room. You can relax with a cup of tea and forget you've ever heard the word blizzard. But I don't come to Ireland for the weather. I come for the landscape, the literary tradition, the folklore, and most of all, for the friendship and the crack. Crack means anything fun, from an old-fashioned joke to a dance or dinner party. Crack inevitably contains banter and repartee. An evening of socializing can be crack, and a person can also be crack. Someone is deemed good crack if they have a sense of humor, can recite poetry, tell a story, perform music, dance or sing, all while interacting with a group of others. In Ireland, crack is the connecting thread of the society. When you meet someone, they might ask, what's the crack? The phrase can mean anything from how are you to what's the gossip. A person that is great crack is great fun or company. Minus crack 
means you would have more fun waiting in a doctor's office reception room. Someone devoid of crack might as well lie down on a mountain road alone and surrender to the elements. Years ago, some of my Irish friends moved to Switzerland. There, they were surrounded by the Alps in an affluent, well-maintained, well-run country. In a year, they moved back to Ireland, taking a financial hit. No crack in Switzerland, they explained. Crack was derived from an old English word, crackian, to make a loud noise or to brag or boast. Crack. Then it meant the sound of thunder or the crack of a whip. Both Robert Ferguson and Robert Burns used it in the 1770s and 80s. But the Irish eventually claimed it, spelling it their way, solidifying its meaning as a sense of fun, and firmly incorporating it into their vocabulary. So there's nothing I love more than arriving in Ireland to a dinner table of folks telling stories and filling the air with crack. At these events, my friends frequently tell tales of me coping with the Irish weather. Once I had been offered the use of a lovely cottage on the Renville Peninsula, a stove set up in the middle room, the walls lined with books of classical poetry. The place had rested at the bottom of a slope, down a lane, just a slight distance to the sea. All had been readied, and I yearned to trot down that lane and set up my writing desk. The problem? A couple of nights before my arrival, a herd of cattle had wandered onto the property and camped on the path, leaving a long, thick pile of their droppings. High alert! Several friends had come to the rescue with a wheelbarrow and shovels, attempting to clear the lane. But the rains kept washing more manure down near the cottage door. Oh, we can't have Mary Swander arrive to a feckin' pile of shite! My friends were shoveling and toting the wheelbarrow again and again but the manure just kept descending. Oh, don't worry about it, I had told my friends when I called them from the Dublin bus headed to Galway. A few cow pies aren't going to bother me. We passed the Hay Pranny Bridge and the statue of Molly Malone, and I thought all was smooth sailing. Nothing phases her, my friend had said at the dinner party. Mary just pulled on her wellies and skated through that mess like it was nothing at all. And then the whole table fell into a hilarious round of good crack, stories about literal and figurative piles of muck. The stories began quietly enough, our knives and forks dug into our lamb shanks and potatoes. Wine glasses were filled and filled again. In my mind... Molly Malone wheeled her wheelbarrow down streets wide and narrow until she found my lane. She joined the cleanup crew, but even Molly couldn't keep up with the cascading dung. Dessert was served. Teacups rattled. Then, in a brown paper bag, out came a bottle of pochine, potent Irish bootlegged whiskey. 
Poutine was a traditional value-added product of the Irish countryside, made from barley or potatoes. Small farmers could make enough money with poutine to pay rent to their British landowners. The Brits tried to tax the liquor, but had a hard time trucking down the distilleries that were hidden in the sides of mountains, often on a lot line. So no one knew who really owned the hooch. In 1661, King Charles finally banned the spirits and simply drove the liquor further underground. The bottle went round the table. Shot glasses appeared. One tiny whiff of the stuff sent my body reeling. Oh, steady me. Take me back to buggy land. Cockles and muscles. Was I still alive? Alive, oh? Now my friends were toasting the new year. Oh, it was going to be a flip of the flippin' calendar. She was a fishmonger, and sure was no wonder. Good crack. For so were her father and mother before. Mighty crack. Cockles and muscles. I slid down the narrow lane of my brain and alive, alive, oh, into a pile that was nothing you would ever, ever find in Switzerland. She died in a fever, and no one could save her, and that was the end of Sweet Mary Swander. And now we have John K. Corliss singing a beautiful tune called Noreen Braun. It'll just break your heart. He learned it from his relatives in County Galway, Ireland. And he's here today to sing it to you. There's a glen in Walter Connell. There's a cabin in the glen where lived a fair young maiden who inspired the hearts of men. She was handsome, hale and hearty, shy and graceful as a fawn. All the neighbors loved that widow's only daughter, Noreen Bon. Till one day there came a letter With her passage paid to go To the land where the Missouri And the Mississippi flow Very soon she had things ready And next morning at the dawn That old broken-hearted mother Parted with her nor in born. Many years that mother waited till one morning at the door stood a handsome looking female, costly were the clothes she wore. Saying, Mother, don't you know me? Sure, I've only caught a cold. 
But two scarlet spots appearing on her cheeks, a story told. There's a grave in old Tyrconnell, where the wildflowers sadly wave. There's a poor broken-hearted mother kneeling o'er a lonely grave. Oh, my Noreen, she is saying, it's so lonesome since you've gone. T'was the curse of emigration brought you here, my Noreen born. So fond youths and tender maidens, ponder well before you go. From your humble homes in Erin, what's beyond you'll never know. What is gold and what is silver, when your health and strength are gone. When you think of emigration, breathe a prayer for Noreen Bond. So I'm looking through the winter issue of Plain Interest, the Amish newspaper. And here's a letter to the editor following up on the follow up of the follow up of the question of why we wake a person when they die. And Rudy asks, I would like to comment on some questions concerning a tradition in letters to the editor. November issue. I too have wondered why we keep up such a tradition if we don't know why we do it. I've been told that one possible reason our forefathers started this tradition of sitting up in the nights prior to the funeral is that at one time thieves might have stolen the dead and sold them to doctors and scientists who used them to learn more about the internal parts of the human body. Okay, well, that's kind of creepy. Thank you, Rudy. And now, moving on here, page 7. Eight, nine, ten, eleven. No, we're going on the back here. We've got a, we've got a, a very interesting bit. Little box set off, and uh, this is by a Yoder who wrote this. And we have, we have a certain love for poetry in Buggy Land. And a lot of you have written really, really good, bad poems in the past. And here kind of, kind of interested me with this call. No matter where you are at with poetry, this is for you. Yes, even if you do not like poetry, we can still use your help. We might even pay you. All you need to do is write us a note stating that Though you don't like poetry, you are willing to help us. If you are in one of the other groups, poetry lovers, readers, or writers, but have never written poetry for plain interest, we'd like to hear from you also. 
Just tell us what category you're in, and you will hear from us. We are looking to replenish our poetry files, and instead of having a poetry contest, which we didn't want to do, we are taking this way to do it. It may be odd, it might not work, but we're going to try it. To find out what it is, you need to write us. To make this more manageable for us, we ask that you include a self-addressed stamped envelope. We don't know what the response will be, but suppose there were a hundred. How long would that take to stamp and address a hundred envelopes? Thank you in advance for doing one. Okay, so poetry haters and poetry lovers, get busy. Get that self-addressed stamped envelope in the mail. And now, looking, turning toward the penultimate page here, I found a, a, an ad that I thought just might save America right now. It's called Locks Harmonica Hotline, and the phone number is given there. And there's all sorts of information uh, where you get hotline-only harmonica specials and more. It says no access code required, and this is all going on in the Lock General Store, which is in Indiana. And you can call and write for a free catalog. And I, I thought, a harmonica hotline. We Yes, we do. That could solve all, all, of the, all the problems that we use hotlines for, but this involves a harmonica. My parents were draft dodgers. My father stayed in the Navy Reserve after serving in the South Pacific in World War II. Upon his release, my parents married, lived near Chicago, and had two small boys. Then the Korean War broke out, and my father's unit was getting called up. My mother was pregnant with me and couldn't bear the thought of widowhood with three children to raise alone. So what can we do? My father asked. Move, my mother said. To where? My father had a job in Chicago, and they lived in a rented basement of a summer cottage on the Indiana Dunes. In the post-war economy, jobs weren't easy to find, and housing was even more difficult to locate. We'll go back to Manning and move in with my folks, my mother suggested. And you'll drive to Omaha and look for a job. Soon they were on the run to western Iowa, where the population was sparse, and the call for reservists low. Western Iowa had provided cover for the likes of Jesse James, Bonnie and Clyde, and John Dillinger. Why not the Swander Gang? They moved into a large Victorian house in Manning, population 1,500, that my grandmother had bought during the Depression for $1,000. My grandfather had just passed away, so my grandmother lived in town, and ran the family farm from there with a tenant on the home place. My grandmother lived downstairs in the Victorian, and my parents fixed up the upstairs as our living quarters. The place needed some repair, so my parents painted, refinished floors, and replastered. Then my father turned to rewiring. 
installing lights with dimmer switches, and even an intercom so the upstairs could talk to the downstairs. This innovation, of course, was rarely used as my grandmother preferred to just bang on the hot water pipes with a metal spoon when she wanted our attention. But the rewiring did yield big rewards. One day, my father discovered a jug of Templeton rye stuffed down between a wall and the studs. Templeton rye was the American pochine, or bootleg whiskey, made in a village by the same name near Manning. German Catholics in Templeton, with a few Irish mixed in, began experimenting with rye mash as soon as prohibition laws swept the land. Carroll County was a center of German Catholic immigration in Iowa. They brought their old world traditions to the open prairies. Unlike their Protestant neighbors, who were dry or frequented dark saloons, the German Catholics drank beer and other spirits at family celebrations and festivities. A wedding wouldn't be a wedding without a keg of beer and beer steins. The local Irish joined in the fun with a taste for whiskey on their tongues. A few farmers ran the mash through copper coils. Then, thy will be done, they had a beverage for the whole family. Soon the family became the town, and the town became the region. The whiskey was brewed in small patches in both the country and in the village, in barns, garages, and sheds. The basement of the Sacred Heart Catholic Church pumped out whiskey every day that went into barrels, shipped by train to Omaha, Kansas City, and Chicago. Soon, the story goes, Templeton Rye became a favorite of Al Capone, and trucks ran the blessed liquid to Chicago every day with shotguns strapped to their running boards. A federal prohibition agent named Benjamin Franklin Wilson was put on the case, but he had a hard time catching Joe Earlbeck, the kingpin of the illegal hooch. In the Depression, bootleg liquor brought a much better price than rye on the commodity market, and Earlbeck had a 40-man payroll producing 1,000 barrels a day. Wilson and Earlbeck tipped their hats to one another on the street. Everyone in Templeton was in on the scheme, and no one was about to squeal. The hardware store ordered the copper tubing that was bent into coils. The shopkeepers kept bottles of the whiskey hidden behind counters for clandestine sales. The undertaker stashed jugs of Templeton rye in empty coffins. The farmers used their hogs to roll the whiskey barrels around their barns to speed up the fermentation process. On the occasions when Wilson did catch up with the bootleggers and brought them to trial, the juries usually let them off, and Hail Mary, full of grace, the operation started back up again. In 1931, some Iowans were outraged when they picked up the Des Moines Register and saw a photograph of a cutout of a little brown jug with the words Christmas spirits strung up on a garland swinging across the main street of Templeton. Boy, do they have nerve. Now they're advertising right out there where everybody can see it. And on Christmas, the bootlegging went on well past the prohibition when Joe Earlbeck finally cut a deal with Wilson 
and bought a bar in the nearby town of Dedham, where he sold legal liquor. But holy Mary, Mother of God, a value-added product like Templeton rye still brought in more income than selling grain in a depressed market. Then, as the economy improved with the war, the hooch became more and more scarce. Things were quiet in Templeton until the mid-1970s. I was back in the old Victorian house, sorting through the family belongings, my mother and grandmother both having died in rapid succession. They're at it again, one of my neighbors told me. In Templeton, how are they getting away with it now, I asked. You ask your barber for a bottle, then he asks the butcher, then he asks the feed and seed dealer until it gets to the source. Then the bottle comes back down the line, one by one, and no one really knows where it ends or who is brewing this stuff. Clever. That summer, I sat under a single light bulb hanging down from the ceiling of the attic, sweat pouring down my forehead, going through old family photographs, letters, and ledgers. I found pictures of my ancestors I'd never met. The resemblance is commanding and clear. I found obituaries of relatives on the East Coast, those who had made the voyage to the States with my grandfather, but had remained in New York in the tenement buildings. I found the letter of blessing that my great-grandmother had written from Cladoduff to my grandfather on the day of his wedding. Well, my grandmother's records from the Depression were fascinating documenting her attempt to keep the farm going through one of the worst economic periods of American history. She recorded her expenses and income, when she sold her crops, when she sold her hogs. Slowly over the course of the Depression, she was making a profit. Not a huge profit, but more money than I expected for those times. She was hanging on to the farm despite the low prices. Hmm, what a good manager, I thought. I read through page after page. Finally, I got to 1936. After the usual debits and credits, my grandmother had drawn a hard pencil line across the page. The lead at once thick, angry, and resigned. Beneath the line, she'd written, Still blew up in the barn and burned down all the buildings on the home place. to announce that Buggy Land is now part of the Iowa Podcasters Collaborative, a group of podcasters creating content related to news, culture, and more. We're organized by the indomitable Robert Leonard. This group arose from the Iowa Writers Collaborative under the leadership of Julie Gamak. Here I've joined the ranks of so many talented writers, including Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Laura Bellin, and Dama James. 
The Writers Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I've created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews, photos and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will read young, diverse writers commenting on current social justice issues. Please subscribe. It's free, or if you care to, you can donate some money at substack.com. S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time.